Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. There is more than the usual amount of news this week from the investment trust sector, so I'm going to dive into that almost straight away, pausing only to note at this point that this has been a notable risk-off week, with most equity indices falling, the world S&P 500 and FTSE all share indices all down around 24 to 2.5% in the last five days, and bond yields also continuing to rise across the maturity spectrum, both here in the UK and in the US. Half the outstanding gilts in issue were down by 3% or more in price terms this week, and a third of them are now sitting on gross redemption yields of more than 5%. The yield curve, the difference in yield between short and medium-term government bonds and those with longer maturities, continues to narrow, a trend which is consistent with, though not necessarily a guarantee of, a trend what we call bear steepening. And as its name suggests, bear steepening is not generally a positive indicator for equity markets, although there are other ways to interpret the movement. The US long bond, the 30-year Treasury bond, has now risen above 5%, a level it hasn't seen since August 2007. Investment trusts have shown how sensitive they are this year to interest rate movements and certainly caught the bearish mood this week, with the investment trust index falling by 2.25% over the week. And the average discount widening out again, I'm afraid, to a new high, or should that be a new low, of 18%, which is now around 6% wider than it was at the start of the year. Fallers in the investment trust sector outnumbered gainers by around 5 to 1. With the Middle East in crisis once again, these are tough times for investors. With the price of gold, a traditional safe haven in times of heightened geopolitical concerns, finishing the week back close to the $2,000 an ounce mark, the level it briefly touched earlier in the year. On a more positive note, my guest this week is Gaurav Narain, manager of the India Capital Growth Trust, ticker IGC, Uh, One of the few trust managers who's fortunate enough to have a lot of positive things to say about their recent performance, the Indian market being one of the year's best performers and the trust, a specialist in mid and small cap shares, doing even better than the benchmark year to date. Shares are up 19% and the benchmark 9%. I also include a short and noisy conversation with John Barron, well known to many investment trust followers for his columns in the Investors Chronicle and his investment trust portfolio service, who was among the panellists at yesterday's AIC's Investment Trust Showcase event, which featured some 40 fund managers uh, putting their best foot forward in these tricky market conditions to an audience of several hundred private investors. As last year, I recorded short updates with half a dozen other speakers at the event, And these will be released as a bonus podcast edition on Monday. The fact that I was recording this in the convention center with uh, a lot of delegates moving around behind me explains why the conversation with John Barron is a little noisy. Turning to the news with the latest UK inflation figures disappointingly flat at a run rate of 6.7%, there was also further disappointment this week for investors in commercial property. 
the latest MSCI IPD UK property index data for the month of September shows an acceleration in capital value declines. The capital value is down for the fifth consecutive month and only seven out of 42 subsectors posted capital value gains, all of them in the industrial property sector. Uh, City offices continue to struggle with values now down 16% year to date as market rents nudge lower in September. As I said, industrial property continues to be the one bright spot with values and rents both edging higher again. Not surprisingly, perhaps commercial property trusts saw their discounts widen again this week with share prices across the sector now down 18% year to date on average, albeit that conceals a wide range of outcomes. Might be worth noting also in passing that M&G this week chose to close its open-ended property fund following uh, substantial withdrawals. The advantage of investment trusts that invest in commercial property being, of course, that they can benefit from having permanent capital and are not subject to having to redeem during periods when investors want to pull their money out. But the flip side of that, of course, is as we've seen this year, that you have liquidity in commercial property investment trusts, but it does not guarantee that you can sell your shares at a price which is close to NAV. Among the announcements this week, Hypnosis Songs Fund, ticker Song, continues to hog the headlines ahead of its continuation vote in a few days' time. Following further consultation with its largest shareholders, who are mostly unhappy with the proposed rather cosy-looking sale of 20% of the company's Songs catalogue to a Blackstone fund that is run in partnership with the Trust's own management company, an obvious potential conflict of interest, the board announced that it was now initiating a strategic review with various new initiatives under consideration. The board has, however, failed to secure the manager's consent to remove the call option it has to buy the trust assets if its management contract is terminated, as some shareholders now seem keen to happen. This is a saga that has been running for several weeks now. One of those shareholders is Asset Value Investors, which likes to get involved in activist campaigns in the investment trust sector, but only goes public when he has failed to get anywhere with private lobbying. Well, it did come out in public this week with a call for shareholders to vote against the continuation vote this week. Uh, This is at a meeting at which the shareholders will also be asked whether they wish to approve the proposed disposal of 20% of the company's songs catalogue, as I mentioned, for around $440 million, which will be used to repay debt and do some share buybacks. It looks like that vote may also fail. Following its latest board announcement, uh, Tom Trina, who's executive director of AVI Investors, which owns 5% of the trust and works with other shareholders as well, said bluntly, uh, if a little unkindly, I can't think of anyone worse qualified to hold a strategic review than this board. Ooh, ouch. Meanwhile, other investors who still like the music royalty business as an investment idea continue to dream about the arrival of a white knight bidder who could come riding to the rescue by offering to take over the trust at a premium to NAV. Well, you can dream on about that, undaunted by the Blackstone Fund's right to match any offer. Earlier this week, in another embarrassing development for the company, Song disclosed that its independent valuer, Citrin Cooperman, had reduced its expectations of royalties payable to the company over the period 2018 to 2022, following a recent decision by the Copyright Royalty Board. As a result, the 30th September valuation for Hypnosis Songs Fund, when it comes, will incorporate a $12 million retroactive reduction in its accrued royalty income for those four years. Shares in Song did finish up 4.5% on the week, 
But at 77p, they still trade a discount of around 50% to the reported NAV, assuming you believe the latter figure. And that is quite striking when you set that against the 11.5% discount at which Roundhill Music Royalty Fund, its closest peer, another music royalties company, is being acquired by an American bidder. So something has to give here. We had some news of manager changes as well this week, most notably that of the impending retirement of Hugh Young, who has been managing a number of trusts and funds for Aberdeen Asset Management, as was, for nearly 30 years, and is a much-respected figure in the business, and one who played a prominent role in creating, I think it's fair to say, the Asia-Pacific Investment Trust sector. Uh, The news came in the form of a results announcement from Aberdeen Asia Focus, ticker AAS, which reported a NAV total return of 7.6% against its benchmark 8% return for its latest reporting period. Succession planning has been in the pipeline for a while for this trust, with the appointment of three other co-managers in recent years, including, as from now, Jin Yao Ng, who will be working alongside Flavio Chong and Gabriel Sachs. Hugh Young, as I said, has been a prominent figure in the investment trust industry, and it's worth noting that since the fund Aberdeen Asia Focus was launched in October 1995, it has produced an NAV total return of more than 2,200%, which works out at an annualised compound rate of 12% per annum, which compares to the 4.7% annum total return for the MSCI Asia X Japan small cap index in sterling terms. So a significant outperformance over a nearly 30-year period. The shares on this one, Aberdeen Asia Focus, are trading on a discount of around 17% at the moment. There was also confirmation that Nick Greenwood, the manager of MIGO Opportunities, ticker M-I-G-O, a man who's well known to listeners of these podcasts, is moving to Asset Value Investors, the firm that is active in the Hypnosis Songs saga, and will be continuing his role there as manager of the MIGO Opportunities Trust, alongside his former colleague Charlotte Cuthbertson, who moved there earlier this year. This follows the decision of uh, MIGO's board earlier this year to move the management contract from Premier Mighton, where it has been since it was launched, to asset value investors. This move will come into effect from the 18th of December. And I will be speaking on the podcast to Nick before that date. Pantheon International, ticker PIN, which has been winning plaudits for its recently announced campaign to narrow its discount, announced the results of its £150 million tender offer which gave shareholders an opportunity to exit at a price between 280p and 315p. Following what's called a reverse tender auction, in which shareholders name the price at which they would be willing to have their shares redeemed, the strike price for the redemption was fixed at 305p per share. That represents a discount to the NAV published on 31st of August this year of around 34%. In total, some 49 million shares will be repurchased by the company, meaning that the entire £150 million that was up for redemption will be returned to shareholders. The shares were trading at 293p before the announcement of the tender, meaning, long story short, that owners of 9.3% of the share capital have been given an exit at around 4% above where the shares were trading. The shareholders who remain in the trust will benefit from an uplift of around 3.5% in the NAV as a result of capital being returned at a discount. Pantheon International also announced that it is replacing its existing £500 million credit facility with a new multi-currency, multi-tranche rolling credit facility secured against certain assets of the fund. 
The shares uh, finished the week trading yesterday around 302p, so just a fraction below the strike price, but were up 4% on the week and have risen 16.5% year to date. This uh, tender offer may set a blueprint that other investment trusts, particularly in the private equity sector, might consider. Also in the limelight again this week was uh, Digital 9 Infrastructure, ticker DGI9, which has the unhappy distinction of being the worst performing investment trust year to date. The shares down more than 50% before this week's announcement, which did, however, see the shares recover by some 11%. The board here has been busy too, saying it's consulted with investors owning approximately 74% of the issued share capital about the best way forward for the trust. Private investors are also offered a shareholder-only webinar earlier this month. The board says it has received feedback in a number of areas, including the dividend policy and the future direction of the company, and has hired Goldman Sachs as its lead financial advisor. The challenge that this particular company faces is that it has a stretched balance sheet and only limited scope to fund the growth capital that its portfolio companies require. But this, perhaps, like Song, is a trust which I think investors actually want to see continue because it has good assets, but there are some significant issues that need to be resolved before it can return to trading somewhere nearer par. There's some news also from RM Infrastructure Income, ticker RMII. There the board says that it intends to publish a circular for shareholders by the end of October to convene a general meeting in which it will seek approval from the shareholders for the managed wind-down that it announced uh, last month. There'll be no new investments made by this trust unless the board considers that doing so will maximise returns to shareholders in the time frame in which the fund will otherwise be dealing with the managed wind-down. The NAV total return for September of this one was just up 0.4% and is up 7.4% on a total return basis over the last 12 months, but is now set to disappear unless shareholders have a change of mind. There was news too this week from battery storage company Harmony Energy Income, ticker HEIT, uh, which said that it had successfully energised, uh, whatever that means, uh, ahead of schedule, two battery energy storage system projects. The 99 megawatt bumpers project in Buckinghamshire and the 49 megawatt Little Wraith project in Fife, Scotland. The Bumpers project is the largest of its kind in Europe, the company says, and will sit alongside another project which is not far behind in size terms. Uh, The projects were developed in conjunction with Tesla, the electric vehicle company, and will be operated through Autobidder, Tesla's algorithmic trading system. Harmony Energy Income now has a total of eight battery storage projects, of which five are now operational and three more are under construction. The three battery storage investment trusts in the renewable energy sector, Gore Street Energy Storage and Gresham House Energy Storage being the other two, are also unfortunately among the worst performers this year, all down by around 40% or so in share price terms. The impact of higher interest rates being compounded by the below expected use of battery storage systems by the national grid, Uh, something though that may be about to change. The particular challenge for Harmony Energy Income Trust is that it has a high dividend target, 8p per annum, equivalent to a prospective 10.5% yield. Can that be sustained if it's not being covered by operating cash flow? Elsewhere, we learned that Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities Trust, ticker APEO, market cap around 680 million, but trading on a substantial discount north of 40%, 
Aberdeen has agreed a conditional sale of its entire European private equity business, of which this trust is part, to a firm called Patria Investments, which is an alternatives asset manager based in Latin America. The Aberdeen private equity business has been up for sale for some time, and therefore it is not a particular surprise to hear that a sale has now been agreed. However, the board will be looking at the situation of the trust in particular and seeing if there are other options for its future. However, as part of the deal that uh, is being proposed, the entire management team of this trust will remain in place if the deal proceeds. So there will be continuity there. Uh, Patria Investments is an alternative asset manager which has some $28 billion of assets under management, uh, but I think is not widely known over here. Finally, on the news announcements front, there was also another unfortunate error in accounting which has affected Phoenix Spray Deutschland, the German rental property company, ticker PSDL, which said that it has uh, discovered a mistake in the EPRA NTA figures it published in its interim results for the six months ending the 30th of June. Uh, Those results came out about a month ago. As a result of this mistake, which involved the valuation of a derivative financial instrument, the EPRA NTA will be reduced by 16 million euros, and the net tangible assets per share will come down from 464 euros to 446 euros. The total return for the trust over the period should have been minus 12.5% instead of the published figure of minus 9%. These kind of accounting mistakes are never good for shareholder confidence, unfortunately. Finally, it was not much in the way of results this week. Uh, We did hear annual results from Vietnam Holdings, that's ticker VNH which reported an NAV total return of minus 5.7%, which was, however, slightly better than the 10% negative total return for the Vietnam All Share Index. This is another trust that's facing a continuation vote next month, but it is uh, the smallest and best performer amongst the three specialist Vietnam trusts over all recent periods. That's one, three, five, and 10 years, albeit that its performance has been particularly volatile. There were interim results from Mercantile, ticker MERC, which reported an NAV total return of just under 1% against a decline in its benchmark of 1.3%. This is a trust that invests in small and mid-cap UK equities. And we had updates also from AWUK, the Commercial Property Trust, from Seraphim Space, ticker SSIT, and from Tufton Oceanic, ticker SHIP, S-H-I-P, all of which can be found if you want to look these up, if you are a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, where we list all the relevant uh, stock exchange announcements that we've had from the investment trust sector over the previous week. And you can also find there our regular summary of the week's biggest movers in share price, NAV, and discount terms, both over the past week and year to date. Uh, This week's profile for Moneymakers Circle subscribers is of the Venerable City of London Trust, ticker CTY, which is the trust with the longest record of successive annual dividend increases. It's top of the AIC's dividend hero list. Next week, we'll have a profile of Pacific Assets Trust, ticker PAC. Finally, I can't resist mentioning a nice story about Muhammad Ali that I came across in some of the broker research that I follow. This one was recounted by Michael Hartnett, the always interesting strategist at Bank of America. 
Muhammad Ali, so this story goes, was flying on an aeroplane that was about to take off, and he was approached by a flight attendant who said, Mr. Ali, we are about to take off. Would you mind fastening your seatbelt? To which Ali promptly replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant, quick as a flash, replied, Yes, Mr. Ali, but Superman don't need no aeroplane. Now, Michael Hartnett sees something of an analogy between uh, Ali's approach and the aggressive recent behaviour of the Federal Reserve in raising interest rates successively and continuing to talk in her hawkish terms. There'll be, in his view, no new secular bull market until the Federal Reserve stops trying to play Superman, puts on the seatbelt sign and starts talking about the need for lower government spending and reductions in deficits. No, I'm not quite sure the analogy holds up either, but it brought a smile to my face in what has been a troubled couple of weeks in both the Middle East and the financial markets. It was a new experience for me this week to catch up with the manager of an Indian investment trust, and that is uh, Gaurav Narain, who's the investment advisor to the India Capital Growth Trust, ticker IGC, not to be confused with ICGT, the private equity firm. Gaurav has been advising this fund since 2011. It sits obviously in the Indian subsector of the AIC classification alongside three larger trusts, JP Morgan, Aberdeen and Ashoka. But the performance over the last few years has been good in both absolute and relative terms. And of course, part of that is down to the fact that the Indian equity market has been a very strong performer. So my first question to you, Gaurav, is going to be, we know the story from India has been very positive in recent years. All the reforms under Modi and so on are pretty well. But what does the actual macro picture look like in uh, India at the moment and, and the outlook from here? I know it's somewhat more rosy than it is in the UK, for sure. Yeah, I think India is on a very strong wicket. Uh, as you mentioned, the reforms are behind and now you're actually reaping the benefits of it. And it's getting fairly evident in the growth numbers itself. So my own sense is that we are today in a position where India is possibly going to be the fastest growing large economy in the world for several years to come. And it's the reforms which have happened. But I think more importantly, there's a big push for growth by the government. And a lot of incentives have been given to the, to the private sector as well. And along with this, I would say geopolitics is also favoring India, that this whole trend towards supply chain reallocation India's at the right position at the right time. So I think, you know, everything's falling in place for India today. Yes, and so the currency has been doing well, less volatile than in the past. You've got a lot of foreign exchange reserves now, and you are getting more foreign direct investment as well. So as you say, it all seems to be going very well. And the stock market has been naturally reflecting that, performing well. But everybody says to me that the Indian market is great, but it's very expensive. The shares in, in Indian stock markets are expensive when you compare them to other parts of the emerging markets or other parts of the world. Is that true? I think that's true. And it's always been the case, uh, even if you go back over the last decade or so. But there's several structural factors behind that. I think the first is that the nature of the market itself, that it's a fairly diversified market. It's not a commodity heavy market like most other emerging markets. And the fair share of consumer companies, tech companies, all of them have very high return on capital and return on equity. So what you see is if you really look at the fundamentals of the market, India has high return on equity, high return on capital employed. But more importantly, even if you track the growth of the earnings and the GDP, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, if you track it, the average growth in GDP itself has been 10 to 12% in dollar terms. 
so you know you have a situation where the fundamentals of the companies in the market are strong and at the same time you've had consistent earnings growth over long periods of time so which is why i actually feel that you know india is not going to derate and it's really the earnings which will keep ensuring that the market performs over periods of time of course there will be volatility because there will be periods of excesses also but on the long term trajectory india has delivered in the past and in my sense it will continue to deliver what do you think have been the most important reforms under the uh, modi revolution if we can call it that i think we probably can has it been the impact on uh, the way that management behave or has it been the impact on the economy overall that has been most important i think it's been broad based and to give a perspective i'd highlight three big reforms the first is the entire taxation system has been reformed uh, you have a new goods and services tax so it's a single tax really across the country and it's all online digital the second is on the banking system huge reforms there a new bankruptcy code and the third is in the real estate sector which really wasn't regulated at all so i would say these are the three big big reforms and the whole focus of the reforms was really on transparency to use technology to really remove the role of the government in decision making at all so everything's tried to make it as transparent as automatic as possible so all this has done is the old way of doing business has absolutely changed today uh, those who beat the system a lot of these businesses have just collapsed and today it's very difficult for a company to not pay taxes or try and evade taxes because everything is online everything is digital and along with this reforms i would say india's also rolled out possibly the most sophisticated digital infrastructure and it's public a uh, public owned i rate india's digital infrastructure as among the best in the world so two things have fallen in place one is the regulatory side and one the way the economy has digitized and both have made it a very transparent economy and very easy for businesses to operate in india so today in fact if you ask a company what more can the government do and most are at loss of words because they've actually said now it's really the onus on us to take it forward Okay, so that is a significant revolution. I mean, if one thinks back, there was a long period when Indian economy was regarded to be very uh, suboptimal the way it was managed. Let's put it that way. <laughs> a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of state control, heavy hand of state and so on. And uh, as you say, a bit of corruption as well, I guess. So I mean, there's an election next year in India and Mr. Modi is going to be carrying on, is he? Or is there any risk that he won't win the election next year? What could derail him? I'm not a great expert on Indian politics, but political mishaps could happen. Well, right now he is hugely popular. I think he's possibly one of the most popular global leaders today. So very high ranking he's getting. So expectations are that they will come back with another strong majority. Of course, it's politics, so there's always risks, and elections are expected in May next year. But I would say there's no real strong opposition itself. So probability is very high that the Modi government could come in power again. I think the issue is with how strong a majority comes in is is I think uh, what the big question is but if he if he gets defeated then we have a slight problem my own sense is that the reforms that have been initiated are not reversible so you know the momentum is still very strong for the next 3 to 4 years but then it'll be up to the new government on how they take it forward but currently i would say the entire market everyone's really of the view that it'll be very difficult to dethrone this current government So I guess there is a sort of bigger risk which is geopolitical risk of something dramatic happening involving India in one way or another though 
at the moment, the country, if I understand it correctly, seems to be in a pretty strong position because it can deal with both the Russians and the Chinese from quite a strong uh, position at the moment. Is, would that be a fair summary? Or am I out of my yeah, depth I, on this one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think India is at the right place at the right time. You know, I think the world needs India a lot more given where it's located, uh, especially on the China side. That's one side of it. And I think it's also the fifth largest economy in the world today. So, you know, it has heft in the market itself. And I would say the big change that's happened is the supply chain reallocation that's happening. By default, India is becoming a partner of choice. And the fact is that India is a democracy. It's a very well-regulated market. You've had multinational corporations in existence in India for 50 to 70 years you know, it's very transparent and well-regulated. So I think the comfort factor is there. The difference is that today your infrastructure is improved, your corporate tax rates, everything is aligned with that of Southeast Asian countries. So it's, it's become a market of choice. All right. So let's then look at uh, what you do in the trust. As I said, the markets perform well and you perform well with Italy in quite a volatile way, I think. But that's partly because you invest primarily in mid-cap and smaller companies, right? And that's uh, something that differentiates you uh, from the other three trusts in the Indian sector. So uh, tell us about your strategy overall and why you pursue this particular strategy. So what we do is really we are very much hands-on, on-the-ground, bottom-up stock pickers. We are very focused that we create very little. Our portfolio turnover is just 10 to 12%. What we do is we buy businesses with a really a long-term investment horizon. Our firm belief is India has always growth. It's just you have to pick the right companies for it. So if you see our portfolio, I would say 65% of stocks in my portfolio I've held for over five years. So what we really focus on is, I would say, high-quality businesses which have good management and businesses which inherently generate free cash flow. So I think these are the three main criteria we look look at. So what we are really looking at, businesses which meet these criteria and are scalable and have some degree of, I would say, competitive edge, which gives that with, through some entry barrier. I think these are the simple few things we look at. And then we just take our time in entering a business and then we ride it over a period of time. I think the trust helps us a lot because we are able to uh, get into relatively illiquid companies in the early stage and play both the growth and the re-rating that happens over time. So it's a very, very clear focus strategy. Try not to do too much, buy a few businesses, know them well and ride it over a period of time. And in terms of the kind of metrics around the portfolio, in terms of PE and cash flow yield and so on, what do they look like at the moment? Because obviously there'll be interest to people how that compares with what they see elsewhere around the world. I think the first metric you should look at is the earnings growth. I think over the next two years, the aggregate earnings growth of the portfolio is about 25% in each of the next two years. Last year, the portfolio delivered an earnings growth of 31%. On the P multiple on financial year, 25 earnings, we're trading somewhere about 17, 17 and a half times which is slightly higher than our historical multiples because we've really done well. So I would say those are the core multiples of the portfolio. The dividend yield is low. It's it's one and a half percent, but that's more because, you know, your multiples in aggregate are high. Uh, but I would say that's the core. That it's really a portfolio which is delivering on earnings. And we believe it's fairly predictable at earnings. I would say it, it's fairly conservative on the growth side of it. So it's really a portfolio where you're playing the India growth story. 
But what we do is each of us stocks while we play in the small and mid cap segment of the market, I would say each stock in our portfolio is a leader in its business or it's, it's such a niche business that it gives it that pricing power and the sustainable growth over time. So I would say it's a quality portfolio, which is geared for a growth over a period of time. Okay, and you mentioned the technological uh, edge that India is developing. Is that something you can invest in directly? And is it a big part of your portfolio? Well, you see, what we're trying to ensure is that our portfolio companies are taking advantage of the digitization that's happening in the economy. For example, even if it's a consumer company, we're really looking at it, how they're making the supply chain a lot more efficient or how they're using the direct-to-consumer markets, the e-commerce market, and you know, being able to expand their portfolio and taking advantage of that. Likewise, in our financials, you know, how they're capitalizing on the you know, rural India is getting into mainstream India simply because of the sort of technology that's happened. Uh, having said that, so, you know, we are trying to ensure our portfolios very, very digital savvy companies are trying to take it as an opportunity than a threat. But we are not really participating too much in the new age companies which have listed of late. And one of the reasons is that they don't really meet our core investment criteria. Most of them are negative cash flows. Right now, they may be very high growth, but we really don't see too much visibility on how they'll ever be profitable. So, you know, when we are not very comfortable on some of these metrics, we actually find there's enough growth opportunities in the economy, then try and move into an area where it's a lot of big picture story and you can't really put absolute numbers to it. So uh, we're playing it through a very different way. We do have one digital company, but that's a very, very profitable company. So, you know, it tick marks all our cash flows, return ratios, criterias. And are there any other significant themes in the portfolio that you would pick out? You mentioned the relationship between China and and India and also the reshoring that's going on with a number of supply chains and so on. Is that a theme you can play in your portfolio as well? I think that's a theme we are playing very aggressively in our portfolio. And you'd be surprised that this theme is spreading across multiple sectors, right? From electronic manufacturing services companies to textile companies to industrial companies. So we are seeing a whole range of portfolio companies which are actually gaining out, out of this theme. So I think that's one big theme we are playing and it's spreading across sectors. But having said that, I would say today, India is in a situation where we're finding actually most sectors have a growth story of their own. It's not that the growth is being driven by two or three sectors. So, for example, in consumption, what used to be a typically a very staples heavy portfolio today is a very discretionary heavy portfolio where we have a whole range of companies from quick service restaurant chains to, you know, fashion clothing to, you know, it's a, it's a whole range of two brown good companies. And in, in the financial sector, you know, we've got pure retail banks to bank playing the small and medium enterprises. So it's a whole range, I would say, of themes we are playing. And I think we're seeing a lot of opportunities today. And as I said, some of them are spreading across multiple themes. I think it's correct to say this trust has a continuation vote coming up in December. And the shares of trading at a discount, they used to trade at a, a wider discount than they do now, I think. I think it's currently around 7% or something like that. There's also a redemption opportunity, I think. So what is the outlook looking ahead to those meetings uh, later in the year? Are you confident you're going to get through those? Well, I think uh, what we've been really focusing on and driven by a lot on the board has been to really try and minimize the discount. And we've really been doing it through two means. One is, of course, trying and broad-basing our investor base, uh, which I think we've done quite successfully. It's become a lot more retail-oriented. And of course, uh, try and deliver on the performance. So 
I would say what used to be a 14-15% discount a few years back is today at about a 6-7% on an average. But I would say India is in a very good position today. So, you know, the India story, I would say, has also just begun. So, I would feel that I think this is the market to be in today. So, I'm fairly confident that to get a 3% advantage on a discount, I don't see that any reason why people would want to exit. So, I would say the redemption, uh, what, what facility we have is that you can tender everything up to a 3% discount on the NAV. Today, we're at about 6%. And given the sort of returns we've delivered and the sort of earnings growth we are projecting, I really don't see why people should want to tender in a market which is projected to do extremely well over the next few years. Yes, and the returns over the last three years have basically been up more than 100%. That's pretty impressive. But I guess the issue is the trust is still relatively small in terms of the overall size, 150 million or so market capitalization, and a lot of talk about consolidation and so on. And the other trusts in the sector are bigger than yours. But I guess you would say that's because you're doing a more specialist strategy than them. You're a small and mid-cap specialist rather than trying to invest across the whole market. So you think there's a niche role for you there anyway. Would that be correct? That's true. I think we are one of the few funds which is so focused on the mid and small cap side of the market. And that requires a very different strategy. You have to be based out of India. You you have to be on the ground. So it's quite a uniquely positioned fund, really. But having said that, the opportunity to grow this fund is also quite immense because the market opportunities are large. So even though it's a mid and small cap fund, I would say you can scale up significantly without ever compromising on where you're picking stocks, really. I think it can very easily grow in size as well. So the final point is, as of this month, effectively, ownership of the management company, which is running the trust, has passed to a company called Asset Co., which is run by Martin Gilbert, who founded uh, Aberdeen Asset Management way back in the last century. Uh, and he's looking to build up and support a number of investment management uh, companies by buying them up and putting them into his portfolio. So there are plans to uh, try and grow this trust under this new uh, regime. Is that right? I would think so. Aberdeen and Martin has always been a very emerging market focused person. He's a, what I know of him, he, he loves India and he really believes in the India story. So I see no reason why one won't scale up the India side of the business, be it through this trust or by launching other products which are focused on India, really. But for us, it's more about how we can leverage on the strengths of Asset Co uh, in the UK, both in the sales, distribution, risk, compliance, uh, you know, we'll try and really see, uh, and of course, the research side, because they're very strong on ESG as well. So, you know, it's more about trying to see right now how we can really leverage on, on the sort of resources that are already present with asset go. And the biggest risk you see uh, is that a possible downturn in the global economy, would that would have an impact on the companies you own, presumably, and that would be the biggest risk out there at the moment that you can see? Yeah, I would say the domestic market is fairly strong and India is still a big domestic story. But I would say the big risk, if anything, is global. And, you know, fact is India is a large economy today. So if, you know, you have a recession in the Western world, India can't shy away from that. Uh, it may be a less dramatic impact, but yes. I think the other issue is really India is, I think its biggest weakness is that we import all, almost 85% of our oil. So, you know, at $100, it's fine. You know, you're managing it because you're getting a lot of foreign direct flows, etc. So your reserves are still very strong. But, you know, if oil sustains at $120 plus, then you may have issues which could also impact, you know, you'll have inflation and, and such impacts. 
Uh, but for the moment, I think India in this last three years, despite COVID, despite oil spiking, despite whatever is happening in the rest of the world, India has been able to deliver and the macros are still looking very strong. But yeah, say if global growth slows down and you're talking about India growing its GDP at 6.5%, it may come down to 6%. But, you know, you're not seeing a situation where it collapse to 4 4.5%. That was uh, Gaurav Narain, the uh, investment advisor to the India Capital Growth Trust, ticker IGC. And next up is my conversation with John Barron, well known to many for his columns in the Investors Chronicle and for being the author of a standard book about investment trusts available from all good booksellers and online. I've known John for many years. He worked in the city managing investment trusts before going into politics and continuing his investment trust activities as a writer and manager of his own website, johnbarronportfolios.co.uk. There is quite a lot of background noise from this uh, recording, I should warn you, but that's because we were recording it uh, live in the venue where the AIC event was being held. There will be other speakers from the event who I talked to, and they will be included in a bonus edition of the podcast, which will be out early next week. So, John, what would be your first piece of advice to private investors who are looking at their investment trust portfolios and possibly worrying about the presence of red ink there? Well, I would say hold on. I mean, inevitably, Jonathan, it depends on one's time horizon. But for medium to long-term investors, definitely hold on because we're in the eye of a storm at the moment. Geopolitically, economically, there's an awful lot of bad news out there. But, you know, one can talk about the following <coughs> forecasting, but um, economies have held up and debt is a problem, but it's being managed, and economic growth is holding up, and more importantly, company balance sheets are holding up. Now, add that to the fact that investment trusts' discounts are at their widest since 1990. There's an awful lot of bad news in the price, so hold on, because I fundamentally believe that sentiment trails the fundamentals. Now, you and I are both, shall we say, experienced enough to remember 1990. <laughs> but, I mean, investment trusts always, as you say, always are cyclical, and they tend to exaggerate because of the impact of gearing and discounts and so on. They tend to exaggerate movements up and down. Having said that, though, it is difficult, isn't it, when all the headlines are negative, it's difficult for people to take your sound advice and hold on. I guess a quick course in uh, investment trust history would be very helpful in that case. <laughs> well, they are a little bit more volatile as an investment instrument. But... Volatility is the price you pay to access their superior track record over time. Now, we, you and I know that. The vast majority of investors know that. But there will be a few at the margin who will see this as an awful time. Sell, discounts widen a little bit, and in a way that becomes self-fulfilling. I mean, the wide discounts, particularly at the moment, is not just reflecting market nervousness. Uh, there are other factors at play, as you well know, Jonathan. The amalgamation of the big wealth managers means there's less room on their books for smaller companies. We have a double cost disclosure issue, which we're tackling at the moment. And there are other factors at play. But generally speaking, you and I have been here long enough to understand that when you've got discounts this wide, when you've got sentiment this poor, and yet when you've got the economic fundamentals not as bad as everybody thinks as recent upgrades to forecasts, whether they be economic or budget deficit or anything else when it comes to the economy, suggest, then certainly I can only suggest you what we are doing ourselves with our 10 real investment trust portfolios. 
on our website, and that is to hold on and look for opportunities, because this is the time to be picking up those opportunities and perhaps taking money, as we have done recently, from more defensive assets, including cash, including gold, including alternative assets to put into equities. I mean, there is, of course, now an opportunity to get a decent yield from other sources, including gilts, and even, well, not from the banks, of course, but from money market funds and so on. There are a number of ways to get a generated decent. And, of course, we know that the alternative asset sector in particular have grown substantially in recent years because that competition wasn't there. Does this mean that the alternative asset sector is going to shrink over the coming years, do you think? Because there's no longer this uh, overwhelming demand. It may be very competitive against cash and gills at current prices anyway. But do you think that's a sort of structural issue for the investment trust sector? Certainly there's no new money going into the sector for all the reasons you know. I mean, you've got discounts. I mean, you know, you've got good quality companies like HICL, Infrastructure. You've got JLEN, Environmental Assets Group. You've got, you know, a whole host of particularly renewable energy and infrastructure investment companies standing at 20, sometimes 25% discounts, offering you a 6.5-7% yield. We think, of anything, this is a buying opportunity. Why are they at that discount? In part because higher inflation, higher interest rates, higher discount rates are bringing into a question asset values, as we know. But actually, the cash flow remains real. People forget that there is a correlation with many of these sectors to inflation. HICL has a 08 positive correlation. We shouldn't underestimate the value of real cash flow, particularly if there's a high correlation to inflation. One of the big topics of discussion these days is, do you think that boards of investment trusts are doing enough to manage their discounts? They do have a range of options open to them. They don't have to go on reinvesting in new projects. Do you think they're doing enough? And if so, what is the preferred method you'd like to see boards do? It's a mixed bag. It's a curate's egg. Yes and no is the short answer to the question. I think some boards are doing very well. We have seen, generally speaking, a pick-up in things like continuation votes on buybacks, which has been, I think, a very good way to go forward. Strategic reviews are being announced by the smaller companies. There's all sorts going on in the sector. I, I think share buybacks is something boards could make more use of. And I don't think it's any accident that where we have seen properly resourced share buybacks clearly signal to the market and meaningful, which also helps the share buybacks existing shareholders, it clears up the share register. But where you've seen that, then I think the market has responded. I'll give you one example. Pantheon International announced a £200 million share buyback done in a very organised way. They gave the market a chance to sell back shares, but through the tender offer also gave shareholders a chance, which is the right way, again, of doing it. And I don't think it's any accident that their discount has narrowed somewhat. As Warren Buffett says, you only have to do the math. Do the math. Move the math. All right. (laughs) And actually, it's accretive to NAV as well. And then when the discount narrows, you can can sell them back into the market for the benefit of shareholders. Now, history suggests that coming through bad periods in the markets like we've been through, you tend to end up with a smaller investment company sector, but a kind of healthier one, if you Mm. like. There's a sort Mm. of Darwinian process at work here. That's presumably got a little way to run still. I think so. I think you've seen a number of strategic reviews now from particularly smaller companies. You're going to ask me, name a few. I can't name them at the top of my head, but I know I've seen a before. I mean, we've seen a whole host, Gabby's done it and others, Aberdeen, Diversify, etc., etc. And I think this is wise because I think when you are of a certain size, 
and you know how the landscape looks, then I think it's incumbent on boards to say, well, listen, are we still meeting our remit? Are we still doing our best for shareholders? And perhaps a tweak is no bad thing. I mean, Aberdeen Smaller Companies Trust merging with Shire's income, for example, does make strategic sense, given Shire's had a significant holding in Aberdeen anyway. Smaller companies. So I think it's wise. I think the short answer to your question is boards are doing enough, but I still think there's more to go, particularly strategic reviews for the smaller companies. Just picking one particular topic which is relevant to that, do you think that more trusts should base their fees on market capitalization rather than on net asset values? An interesting question. First of all, let me say, and I'm not ducking the question, I'll come back to it in a second. I think there is an incorrect emphasis on cost as opposed to performance net of fees. And I, I think this is part of the problem we're seeing with the double costing disclosure in business at the moment. We don't have time to go into that now. But it does make some investment trusts look very expensive. It's having the effect of them being withdrawn from platforms and other sorts of connotations, which is reducing demand, which again is not helping the discount uh, situation. I think that as long as it's transparent, then the fund manager's prime responsibility is to drive forward the net asset value. And through good performance, over time, that will hopefully go a long way in addressing the discount. Now, there are other factors at play, as you and I well know, and we can discuss the nuances of those. But actually, at the end of the day, to be fair to the fund manager, their responsibility is the net asset value. So for the moment, I'll stick with net asset value. As long as there is an industry-wide recognition, and that we're not there by a long chalk, that we need to focus on performance net of fees, in a way, value, rather than just simply cost. And final question, John, at this point. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of turnover on, uh, amongst directors on boards. We've had a lot more diversity on boards, which is all a positive thing. But do you think this is a time when it would be very helpful to have directors who actually got experience of previous down cycles? Because we haven't had one like this for a while. Well, I think you and I probably have a conflict of interest here, Jonathan, if only courtesy of our age. Um, what I would say is often there is no substitute for experience. But listen, that's not to say there aren't many bright young things out there that are going to do a very good job. So that was John Barron and a crowd of others in the background talking to me at the Investor Showcase event. Uh, you can hear more speakers from that event in a bonus podcast, which will be released early next week. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website. <laughs>